Okay. Okay. Dude, I'm also not even a good reader out loud, so. <laughs> Before I do my intro, I have to learn how to read. What's up? I'm James Saboni, and this is Tiger Radio, the podcast recorded in the back of Tiger Records, a record store located in Jacksonville, Florida. You might think that working in a record store, talking about music all day, every day, that I'd get a bit sick of it. But no, it's actually the exact opposite, and I'm lucky to have a bunch of interesting and talented friends all over the planet to talk records with. And that's why you're listening to this podcast. Now, I realize there's already a sea of other shows vying for your time and attention out there. So my plan with this is to keep things short and focused. Just a few questions with people that I like, skip the bullshit, and get on with your day. So let's kick off episode one with my friend Ned Russin. You know Ned from Title Fight, Glitter, Big Contest, and plenty of other bands. So here we go. What's up, dude? How are you? Thanks for doing this. Yeah, yeah, of course. This is my... You're the first one. Nice, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. You got, how was the drive back from D.C.? It was... I mean, from Austin. It was surprisingly chill. Cool. There's like five of you guys in that band, right? Yeah, and Gene did all the driving. Dude, you mentioned that Gene does all the driving. That's yeah. fucking crazy. That's my yeah. nightmare, dude, is driving so, across the country. Yeah, it, with was, all my, it was a lot. All my friends goofing off in the back. Yeah. Dude. But it was, that, the way back was easier. Because yeah. It was more streamlined. Like we just did it in like two days and, you know, had a couple stops, but it was mainly just like the goal was to get home. Yeah. Sick. Yeah. That was a fun weekend, man. I'm sure you guys killed it. We did good and yeah, it was fun. Cool. Yeah. We can just roll. And I think the way I'll probably start all of them off is just talking about your earliest experience walking to a record store, really, or a CD store, or whatever you guys had. Yeah, so um, there was a chain of stores, a local chain called Jordan O'Darn's Gallery of Sound. And the closest one to my parents' house was probably like a mile and a half down the road. Oh, cool. On the, on the main drag on Wyoming Avenue in Edwardsville. And it was in this little shopping mall. There was like, there was the Gallery of Sound. There was like the movie theater where the guy would let you in to R-rated movies if you're underage. <laughs> you know, like that was like the 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 shopping mall that it was in. And uh, it was just like a big store, mostly CDs is how I remember when I was a kid. And um, my whole story is like, I have an older brother who was into punk and hardcore when he was a teenager. And so, and he's seven years older than me. Mm. So he was like 14, 15, getting into like whatever kind of like hardcore was presented to him immediately passed it down to me. And I was like so young and I was you know, taken by it, but also I, it just kind of felt like normal to me in a weird way. And so my earliest memories of going to the CD store are being like seven years old and going to buy Misfit Static Age. <laughs> wow. And it had to be like shortly after it came out. And like, you know, like that's where I did like my my record shopping up until like high school or something. It, it felt kind of like, uh, I don't know how I imagine like a lot of like 90s record stores were kind of like focused on like cool alternative music and like college rock and also had anything that you'd hear, hear on the radio and stuff like that. It was kind of like, you know, a little all over the place, but definitely catered towards kids going to shows at the same time. Um, 
I, I think by introduction being through my brother and like having that and like having the record store be close to home and have it stock revelation records mm. and like, you know, in high school I went there and I bought the outburst CD Sick. and like things, they had that like on the shelf, like stuff like that. It just felt like kind of normal to me. Yeah. Um, which is weird because it's not really normal, especially in Wooksbury, you know? Right. Dude, that's incredible. Yeah, because I feel like someone like me or a lot of people that don't have sort of like the guidance of a cool older brother had to do so much trial and error where I bought so many CDs that I don't like or that are kind of lame to find the good stuff. That's cool to have this direct connection to, yeah, Static Age, like you said. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, I'm, I realize I'm like fortunate in that way, you know, like, because yeah. he had like a CD book and Sick. like we could go through that whenever we wanted. And then, you know, like whatever four or five years down the line when everybody got iPods, he uploaded his CD book to the family computer. Amazing. And he was in college at that point, but we had his whole music collection essentially. And also we were then aware of how to download our own music. Right. So it's like we had the foundation and the information from all that, but then also we were just coming up in an age where it was like, so music was so accessible. Right. I just think it's kind of weird because like, I got into the same stuff that my brother got into. I was able to access it like within, you know, whatever, however long it took me to find like the blogspot link or something. Right. But my brother, like he already had heard it, knew what it was, was like, you know, talking shit on it. was like, Oh, like that's <laughs> not that good. Like you don't want to hear that. Like, you know, yeah. It, it felt like we were able to access all the information, but my older brother like already had it all too. It's weird how that happened. I, I mean, it, maybe it's just because hardcore is so small you know right and it's very accessible in that regard is that why you think you guys started title fight when you were so young because you guys were kids when the band got going right yeah i mean jamie was definitely 12 holy shit ben and i were probably 12 when we started i don't think we were we didn't play our first show until we were all 13 but i think we like started practicing when we were 12 it's just like it's just again like it's a weird thing it's just like something that kind of felt like this is just like what you do right do a band you're a kid and therefore you play an instrument and therefore you start a band and therefore you play shows yeah like that's just what i kind of assumed that like you do if you i don't know if there's something to do like i I, I didn't care about sports i didn't care i i tried skateboarding i'm not good at it you know i still like it but it's like it was like music was just a thing that clicked with me immediately and it's like i like playing it i like the way it sounds i think it's cool it looks cool yeah. And therefore I'm going to do it. And it's yeah. just like, yeah, I don't know. Simple, smart. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing that's so interesting about title fight too, though, is that there's obviously no way you knew it would become a band that's so influential and beloved for such a long time. What, what does that feel like to be, I'm assuming everyone's first band to be a thing that's like still discussed today. I mean, to me, it, it's not like surprising that it lasted a long time just because it felt like, uh, our friend group having a good time, you know, that's awesome. It's just like, yeah, like this is what we like to do. And that's, so we're going to do it. You know, it just kind of felt that was like a no brainer to me, you know, cause it's just Jamie, Ben and me, we all like the same stuff and we all had fun doing it. And then two years later we added Shane and then it was like, you know, we were, when Shane joined the band, we were like 15 and Shane was probably 16. <laughs> That's when we were like super gung ho about everything. Yeah, that's when you got like. How old were you? When you were you when you started touring and putting stuff out? Um, we probably started putting stuff out when we were like seventeen. Wow. 
and touring like I, I mean I'm gonna say touring in earnest when I that means like we toured over the you know like summer break in high school when I was 18 I think wow but yeah it's just like that that like it, that that feels kind of I don't know that's not surprising to me just because it was the founded again like you know I saw my older brother do it right right by the time I was in middle school I think maybe early high school like Coldwell was in Europe wow yeah like, Coldwell had like two seven I mean and before that like when I was definitely in middle school, Frostbite put out a seven inch. Oh, right. You know, and it's like, so it's just, these things seemed tangible in a way that other, I don't know, hobbies or interests kind of didn't. And so like, I mean, for example, like skateboarding, I knew people who skateboarded and I knew people who made videos and I looked up to those guys, but I didn't know anybody who like had their name on a skateboard. Right. Yeah. You know, unless they put it there, like unless they wrote, you know. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. He just like showed you how you can do it and kind of how easy it is or how practical it can be. Yeah. And so it's like when I was in middle school, when like when Jamie and I started the band, it was like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to start this band and then we're going to put out a seven inch. So sick. And that's like the first thing that we kind of like talked about. That was the goal. And so, you know, we just kept going. I mean, to go back to the, like the original question, like, no, I didn't think it was going to get that big. Right. Okay. I thought it was possible to like, again, I thought it was possible to put out a seven inch Thought we could probably get to Europe. I thought we could like play Philly. Like it was weird because like Cold World wasn't like a a big touring band at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, like they toured, but they toured in the way that hardcore bands tour. So it's like you do a weekend, you, uh, you know, you do like a full U.S. tour in two weeks and then you go to Europe for like three weeks or something. Like that's like what touring was at the time. It felt like totally. And so I was like, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's like all I ever thought. Like, yeah, we'll just do that. And then like, we'll probably like go to school and get jobs and, try and do this when we can right that's amazing i feel like most kids that age like i feel like most people's first bands they don't even know how to tune yet they don't even know they need a tuner they don't know like how to find tone yeah like my my like alex gave me a a, a really shitty dan electro tuner from my birthday one year <laughs> and title fight had probably been a band for like two years at that point you know all right that makes sense then in my head right now, title fight comes out of the first practice and like writes a hit and yeah. it's like tight. Yeah. And for me, tone at the beginning was like, okay, if I crank every knob to 10, then I'm louder. <laughs> and so that's all I did for the first however many years of playing bass. All I did was just dime everything. So sick. Because <laughs> then I was like, it sound, I felt like I was like two watts louder. Yeah. And that's all I wanted to be. That's awesome. Did you learn how to play bass? From being in the band, there probably wasn't much time before Title Fight of you playing bass in your bedroom, right? It was probably just got a bass um, and started playing. I probably played bass for like a year or two before Title Fight started. Because I I mean, my my family put me into music lessons when I was really young. Oh, cool. And so I had played piano from the time I was a kid. And I was in violin lessons at the time. And I think I'd probably like at that point already played like trombone in the school band. Like I was always like dabbling in music stuff. Oh, wow. And so I, I was, I got a bass for my birthday. I guess it was probably 99, mm. if I had to guess, maybe 2000. Um, and I, I chose bass because Alex played guitar, my older brother, and I didn't want to like rip him off. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be like, you know, separate from him. That makes sense. So I got a, yeah. So I got a bass and I like, I just try to figure out songs from bands that I liked and I try to start bands, but like I was, you know, 10 years old. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's like kind of impossible to start a band when you're 10 years old. So the, like I had a good amount of time of just playing by myself, playing with Ben downstairs, just like, you know, fucking around. Um, I, I guess we started like playing music with some other people, but it didn't become like, I don't know. It, it didn't feel like real until like we met Jeannie. Wow. Know? And That's like awesome. that, I mean, we were still like terrible <laughs> for like the first like four years of being a band. Like that stuff is, is abysmal. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's like, we, we just clicked on that level, you know? Right. You found someone you could write songs with and just connect with. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think something to put it into context too is like at that time, Blink-182 was like the biggest band in the world. Sure. It felt like, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like, at the same time that brought up a lot of other somewhat underground bands, you know? And to us, like that was kind of like our Nirvana in a way. Um, and so like we got into that stuff and we knew a bunch of other people who were like into music at the same time, but it's just like, we kind of were on the same wavelength. Like we liked Descendants and Blink-182 and Minor Threat and like bands like that at a young age. Yeah. And Jamie, like, I, I, like he was like on board with all of that, you know? And then Shane too. Like I remember before Shane was in the band, like, he was the kid at school who wore the misfit shirt. Like that's how I knew him, you know? Yeah. And so uh, like it, it, we just clicked on that level and it seemed like, well, and, and our peers did as well, like the kids that we hung out with and like, and we skated with and we, we played music with, we all liked that stuff, but there were definitely other factions of kids who were like into bands that we weren't hot on, you right. know, like, but they were like kind of underground or like, somewhat mainstream and we were like no this is like the real stuff this is yeah. like, we're into the good stuff you guys are posers you know like, yeah, yeah it's weird like we already had that <laughs> at a young age when we were listening to like stuff that was partially on the radio you know right right i had the same feeling because that's the same era as like i don't know slipknot or corn or whatever and i feel yeah, like totally. yeah me and my friends were into punk and we're the, therefore we're into the cooler side of things yeah at that time that's what i thought for sure man Speaking about Cold World and stuff, and this is something that I've discussed with my friends a lot that I'm sure you've discussed with a lot more, is it's so interesting that this little corner of PA can produce so much quality stuff that like has had so many bands for such a small area. Why do you think that is? How did that happen? Like, How has there been so much quality bands? I'm, for the town that I'm from originally, before I moved to Jacksonville, is probably the same size. It sounds like this a similar vibe of a town and we'd never produced one good hardcore. Yeah. I mean, I get asked this question like a lot and I never have like a good consistent answer. I think really, I don't know kind of how I feel about it right now in my life is I think the reason why there was good music from the area is that um, there was a good scene, you know, there was a scene in the Wilkesbury area from the early nineties. Wow. Um, there was like venues and bands and zines and record labels and all this stuff. And uh, a lot of those bands didn't get out of the area, Mm -hmm. which it was, it's still something that like, I'm trying to wrap my head around over 20 years later, like after getting into music, but there's a bunch of bands who just played rock cool stuff of the area and kind of distribute that information to the greater public. I see. Um, There was just this, 
I, I feel like I keep saying the word foundation, but like there was a strong foundation of a local scene um, that existed well before I ever went to, you know, I, I ever heard like real music, you know? Right. And so I think all that stuff going on supported the bands in the scene and supported the people and grew and, and changed and, and evolved into like where it was when we started going to shows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's cool because I mean, there's like strength for reason who's like, you know, late nineties and they are like on back to basics and like doing cool stuff Yeah, mm-hmm. and like bands from like a little bit farther away, but it wasn't like from my perspective, it was like, it wasn't until like Crossfire started mm-hmm. trying to tour that there was a band from the area that was like trying to go out and play shows. I see. Know? Right. And I think, um, I don't know. We just had that there as an example. And also like all those guys were into cool music and they passed it down to us. And so mm-hmm. then we had like, like my brother's CD book, right. we had all the work that they put in and the people that before them put in to find cool music. We just had that like when we were 12 years old. Right. It's kind of, it's kind of gifted to you. Like, yeah, I, I just, I feel lucky because it's like, yeah, we're from an area where I had that stuff handed down to me, but at the same time, it's because people put in the legwork of like finding that stuff to begin with, you know, there's right. like, yeah, there was a fest called Wilkes-Barre Fest that happened in the mid nineties and had like a bunch of cool bands on it. There was, um, there's this band called Bedford and the drummer of that band was this guy, Ed Gida. And he was like booking all these cool shows and kind of like, he was the guy who did like bring a can of soup, get into the show for like $5 and did like free Tibet fundraisers and like stuff like that. And those are the guys who like turned my brother into cool stuff, you know? And those guys like Ed Gita and them, they had old heads that like, I don't know who they are, Yeah, you know? And it's just this thing of like kind of continually passing down and building on all that. And then when we like inherited it, it was already built up to this spot where it's like, all this information was accessible and like, okay, here are cool bands. We listen to them. We go and we practice cool bands come to the area. Hopefully we'll play with them. And like, we're just trying to like write music that, you know, is inspired by the bands that we just heard and we got into. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it totally makes sense. Like that if enough people put in hard work in that sort of, if the next generation is eager and understands that it's something that's cool and worth yeah, building upon, or I think it's fun to build upon. Yeah, then I guess why would it ever stop? Like, as long as there's new young kids that are into cool stuff. Uh, for those of you who don't know, let's, I kind of want to like rattle off some bands like Cold World and War Hungry, obviously, and you guys and Tiger's Jaw. And it's still going. That's one step closer, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, I mean, like, yeah, there's a, the early 2000s was like a really cool time, I think, for, for Works Better Hardcore um, because there was like, True Identity and uh, On Deck and Frame of Reference and uh, like a bunch of bands that basically just like put out demos and stuff and played early Posse numbers. Right. Um, oh yeah, Posse numbers have got to be a big yeah contributor of all this. And so I mean, there's like there's a bunch of bands. I, I feel like yeah. I always do a disservice to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're on the spot. Um, I get that. Yeah, for sure. but like it's it's. Yeah, there's always been bands and there's like still bands and it's it's really cool that a, a place that kind of in the middle of nowhere has been able to do that and keep that going like since the early 90s. You know, like it's it's cool. Yeah, I think it's incredible. Let's fast forward. I want to talk about Glitter. Glitter is like a fascinating band to me because I'm curious what it's like to step. We have a band, you're behind a band and to step out away from that. And when it starts, it's just sort of you and a laptop. 
what was the motivation behind that? And like, was it scary at first? What were the first glitterer shows like? Or what was dropping the demo like? Is that? Yeah. Um, so I mean, when I started glitter, I was in New York, um, and I was going to school, and that was like my you know my full time thing. I was whatever taking like five classes at the time, and so I I like really wanted to do a a band, but due to like time constraints and also just to like the logistics of of being in New York and having it be like a hard place to play music. I was like, I'm just going to write these songs, see what happens. You know, I had a MIDI controller that I bought a couple of years prior and I had that came with a free trial of Ableton. And I was kind of like coming up with these ideas and I kept like hitting a wall with it. And I, I think I was trying to do something like too grand and something too, like, mm. I don't know, too involved. And then when I was like, okay, I have like limited time. I have limited energy. And at that moment, I like I had like no one to play music with really. I was like, I'm just gonna write these songs that like are simple, just to the point, basic, whatever, that I could just like do right here, right now with the the, the stuff I have at my desk. And so I started like I, I wrote the first song in in um I don't know, the summer of 2017, I think it was. And at the time I was living with three other guys, all from Florida, uh, in in Brooklyn. And I kind of like, my test was like, I sent them the song and I was like, hey, this is the first thing that I finished. I think it's going to be a new band. And they were like, yeah, it's good. I was like, okay. That's awesome. The goal was like a 10 song EP because the songs were so short. I was like, I could just like, hopefully bang this out really quick. You know, just like have this be something kind of, I don't like to use the word fun, but like have it be something like non-committal and like, just like this, this would be like, a band that I'm doing in New York. I started working on the songs. I only got to eight for the first recording. And I was like, I think eight's enough. Even though it's eight short songs, it's still eight full ideas. Sure. You know, so it's like, I have to come up with unique lyrics, vocals, like instrumentation, like like everything for every song. It's like, it's not like it's, it's any easier because they're short. <laughs> right. If they were normal songs, I would just repeat the parts that I already have. Right. And so it's like, okay, I like it. I have to do all this. And so I, you know, I got eight songs together. And then as I was finishing up whatever that like first EP or whatever you want to call it, I don't know, demo, this is the first recording. I got hit up by my friend Casey, who was playing in the band Fiddlehead at the time. Mm -hmm. And I had already told him that I was like working on this music. And he was like, uh, like, hey, Fiddlehead is planning a weekend and we're going to play Brooklyn. Do you want to play with your new band? Oh, cool. And I was like, honestly, like, I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I wanted to do it where I would play bass and sing and then have like the, the program drums and the keys kind of go along with it. Mm -hmm. But I was like, but I don't know how to like make that work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Technically the technical yeah, aspect like, of it. Yeah. Like some of the, like one of the songs <laughs> had keys only at the end. I'm like, what am I going to do? Like play to a click track. Yeah. And like, how do I separate clip from music? And like, then I were in your monitors or something like, right, right. I don't know how to do any of this. Right. And then I was like, I guess I'll just sing. I don't really like know any other way around it. And so Casey was like, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll put you on the show. And I was like, okay, this is just good. This is a good way to get me to like finish the record. Sure. And put it out and just like commit to the idea. Cause I'm, I'm a big believer in just like 
committing to something and moving on. Amazing. You know, like creative stuff. It's like, I don't like to sit around and, and I don't know, mess with ideas over and over again, because I'm just, that stresses me out Mm. to me. It's like, it's okay. If something's imperfect, I just want to get out, like get the idea out and move on to the next one. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to play a show. I'm going to commit to doing this. I'll put up the song online. I'll bring my laptop and, you know, like I'll just plug it into the PA. And the first show was super uncomfortable for me. <laughs> Dude, yeah. I bet that it was, was hard. Like, I bet that was so it hard. It was so weird. How did it go? It was, it was, um, I think it was fine. It, I didn't bomb. And so uh, that was my main goal. It's like, act like you know what you're doing and don't bomb. Right, right. I was able to hide behind certain things that I like understood about playing live. But at the same time, there was so much of it that was like so foreign and so uncomfortable. And I had to like take a long time to figure out how to properly like react to that. For me, like playing live was like a challenge, something that I had to figure out how to make work because it was, um, it's not like it, it's like I invented the idea and it's not like I'm like, uh, like a unique artist for doing it. like I, I don't know it's just like this this was the way that I figured out how to play the songs I had written live right and then the, the fact that it was uncomfortable and weird made me be like okay I like it because it's weird and so I'm gonna like keep going down this hole until I can figure out how to make it like not weird for me because it, it wasn't like a bad weird it was like I'm uncomfortable and I think partially I'm uncomfortable because I think people are uncomfortable for me because it's an awkward thing. Interesting. Okay. I understand and that. So, yeah. And then I was like, I just want to learn how to like flip this on its head. And it took me like probably a year or two of, and also my rule at the time in New York was I will play any show that I get asked to play. <laughs> that's as long so as it's like all ages, like I'll play at any show. I don't care. Dude, that's so cool. And so I was playing like all these weird random shows and I just used all that time to like, figure out how to do it um, and how to not feel like I was, I mean, I still feel like the, like even when I got comfortable with it, like I was making a fool of myself and that was kind of like the point in, in some capacity, but uh, I didn't feel like I was like a uh, shameful, you know, and at the beginning it was like, this is like, this is weird. And I don't know if I should be doing this. Right. And that's why I want to continue doing it. <laughs> that's awesome. I totally get that. I think that's super cool. But now you're playing, almost always with a band, right? You always. Before, uh, like we, I played with a band before like there was glitter was like a band band. Yeah. I had kind of like thrown out the idea of like, I want glitter to be like an evolving thing where it's like, sometimes I'll show up and it'll be just me. Sometimes I'll show up and it'll be like two other people, sometimes like five other people. And I was like, that, that'd be like a cool way to like do something weird. And then once I started playing with everybody, then I was like, I, I just want this to be it. it. It was, it was nice to do something different because that's the only way I've ever done anything since, you know, I was a, a kid. Yeah. Since jamming with, you know, Jamie and Ben when I was 12. Right. You know? And so it was like nice to disrupt that process. But then when I returned to the same thing and I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is the thing that I like love more than anything. Having loud guitars, having Ben play drums, like having like everything cranked and just like 
having that, it was hard to ever think about going back to doing it a different way. Right. Man, one thing about that kind of relates to Title Fight and Glitter and kind of what we're talking about that I've always liked about both bands, I guess it's just maybe you as a songwriter, but that each release for both bands like moves forward. And that's something that I think is cool. Is that is that a decision that you make or is that just kind of naturally how you write? I, I think it's natural. Because hmm. um, even, even in times where I feel like I tried to lay out some sort of trajectory, it never worked out that way. There would be times, I mean, it, it was only one time with Title Fight, we kind of like had like a band meeting. It's like, okay, we're going to start writing a new record. And that's what became Hyperview. It's like, what do we want it to sound like? I mean, I in my memory, I throw out a bunch of stuff and that's like what I wanted it to be. And then that's not what it ended up being at all. You know, and it's just because for me personally, the way that I approach writing music, I want it to be kind of like a reflection of, of where I'm at at that time. Mm. And so whenever a record comes out, I'm doing an interview with whatever, like people always ask that question. I always kind of like give the answer. It's like, uh, I've listened to a bunch of new things. I've experienced a lot of new feelings. And so I'm trying to reflect that through mm. the music, you know? And I think that's like the easy, like, you know, whatever canned answer. And I do believe that, but it's also just like, I have a natural way that I play music and I have a natural way that I, I like things to sound, but what I play is, is definitely um influenced by the way that I'm feeling at that exact moment the stuff that I heard before I sat down the right the stuff that I've been listening to a bunch at that moment I never try and like map anything out I never try and have like this big idea about I don't know sound or aesthetic or or anything like that it's just like these are the songs that I happen to be writing and you know and when I get enough of them I'm going to put them on a record yeah that totally makes sense <laughs> Kind of right off the top of your head, and you don't have to think too hard about it, but I'm just looking for three bands or records that in any way you would say are life-changing. And it can be about change your perspective musically or, I mean, politically or a lot of different ways a record can change you, I think. But um, I think for me, the easiest would probably be the Red Beatles record. Mm. That was like what uh, my family listened to at home. And that was like before I was into hardcore, before I was into like anything, that's what I heard. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that's like what really kind of what I like internalized, internalized as like what good music is. And to this day, like I wrote it off for a long time when I became like a teenager and I got into hardcore. I was like, I don't like the Beatles because my parents like the Beatles and that's old tiny stuff. And yeah. I don't care about it anymore. And then now, like later, it's like, no. I like it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like, it reminds me of, I don't know, listening to it like with my family or something probably, mm -hmm. but like, I love the Beatles. I love like all eras, but those early songs, that's the stuff. Like I feel the same way that I, I feel like listening to that, that I did like, I don't know when I like heard hardcore for the first time, mm. you know, like that, like, it's it's it it like gives me chills and like makes me want to like the only way I know how to react to music is to mosh you know like it makes me want to like stage dive you know it's like this is like unreal music and so like I still feel that way and that's just like yeah that changed my life because it you know it kind of that's like what what made me 
realize, uh, I don't know, I like music, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Youth of Today, Break on the Walls mm-hmm. is a huge record for me. Because my brother came up in the time that he did, he didn't really separate, like, I mean, he separated hardcore because he was definitely, like, a hardcore kid. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think, like, coming from the scene that we existed in and, like, coming at, up at the time that he did, it was just kind of all, like, this is underground music and we kind of listen to it all. Mm. And so when he, like, when we got into music through him, I was listening to like Sam, I am just as much as I was listening to like super touch. Gotcha. You know? mm-hmm. And so I kind of felt like I existed, like it, it didn't feel like I existed in different worlds, but I felt like, yeah, I just like all these things. It's just cool. All of it's cool. And I still think all of it's cool. But when like, I got really into breaks on the walls, that's when I was like, no, this is like what I'm all about. You know, like, okay, now I'm buying metallic shorted ones. Now I am like, you know, uh, like just like trying to look like the record, trying to act like this, the, you know, trying trying to like take to heart the things that the, the songs are about, trying to like do bands that sound like that. And that like, because Youth of Today does such a good job of presenting the band as an identity. And I think they're so good. Like the reason why, like youth crew as a sound and as a scene, like spread all across the country and then continued on and has continued on to this day is because there's like such a good live band and there's such a good, like energetic, like band that it, like for me, listening to the records and watching videos and doing all these things, it made me feel like there was no like higher truth. Mm. Like it's like, th- this is like all there is. It's like this band believes it so much that I believe it so much. That, that was like, you know, my late teens, early 20s. So I was like, that was it. And then um, the third one I would say is probably Fugazi Argument. Mm. Um, because Fugazi was like a band that I liked when I was in high school. I had Repeater. And I was like, yeah, this is good. But it wasn't really my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Minor Threat is like all time, all time. Like no bullshit as good as the Beatles. Like, I think they're fucking incredible. Um, And so when I heard Fugazi, when I was like, whatever, 17, I was like, this is cool, but it's not Minor Threat. And I like Minor Threat way more. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, like, I'm just going to be in that camp. And (laughs) then when I was like in my early 20s, and I was like checking out, you know, stuff that I felt like I missed the boat on. Mm -hmm. um, I went back and I like got all the Fugazi records and Argument was the first one that clicked with me. I think partially because it's like a nice melodic record. Um, it's like really digestible. It's really just like, I don't know. It's not like as abrasive and harsh as the other stuff. And it's it's just like a really good record. Um, and I feel like I got tripped up by a lot of the kind of dissonant kind of weird. I feel similarly about Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. Like Rather Ripped is the record that got me into Sonic Youth mm-hmm. because it was like, the melodic easy like easygoing one right and so argument i was like oh i really like this i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna listen to, like the other records and then like getting into like the whole catalog this is the most this is like the coolest band to ever exist you know like yeah obviously i think their music is amazing but it's also just like the way that they presented themselves the way that they operated um getting into all that like that made me want to do things in a completely different way. 
And I, I think the thing that I also talk about a lot with Fugazi is like, I think people talk about that stuff first. They're like, yeah, the shows are $5. The records were cheap. Um, they didn't make sure it's like, oh, that that's like so cool. But really like the important thing about Fugazi is that they wrote fucking amazing music too. Yeah. You know? And like, there are a bunch of bands that also had the same morals and operated in a similar way to Fugazi. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk about them in the same regard. Mm. Fugazi did all that. And like, that's one of the, like the main reason, not one of the main reasons, but that's like, a, that was something that like really affected me, but they back it up with like incredible music that they play so well. And that's like, so just like beautifully written and so like, so thoughtful. Um, that that was to me, like, that was the complete package. Really, like, those records clicking for me was, like, a really big moment. After I really got into those records, I think I spent six months where I only listened to Fugazi. Wow. It's like, every single time I had music on, it was Fugazi. I, I don't, it's it's stayed with me, and I don't think, I, like, I'm not trying to be in bands that sound like Fugazi. And naturally, the way that I play, it doesn't sound like Fugazi stuff at all but it's like the stuff that I hold in the highest regard. It's like, it's, it's so good because it's like a, something I could, I, I'm like not capable of at all. It's just like crazy music that really works and is really badass, and they really mean it and everything else good about it. Dude. Yeah. I love that. I love, I love them too. I love those answers. I remember when I was, you know, in my early twenties, same kind of thing. It was like, yeah, my throat was the top and, I remember hearing the Fugazi records and thinking like, maybe I'll like those when I was older. Like, I know I don't get it yet. And really falling in love with it. Um, yeah. Dude, I don't know if you told me this story or maybe it was Shane or something, but didn't you all meet Ian at like Coachella or something? Yeah. Yeah. How was that? It was terrifying. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I, I met him at Coachella at the catering tent and, uh, like all these people were going up to him and asking him for their picture. Hmm. And he was very like nice. He took, you know, I, I sat there for 30 minutes watching him take pictures of people. And just like, they were interrupting his dinner with his family. And he was like, yeah, I'll take a picture. No problem. And he's like, very oh, wow. cool about it. And I was like, I, I feel so bad because I don't want to interrupt his dinner because I respect him. Sure. But it's like, but I, I, I just want to tell him, you know, uh, he's all of his bands changed my life. You know, like, like no bullshit. My right. threat, embrace Fugazi, like whatever, Egg Hunt, Palehead, like I like all that stuff. Like I legit like love all that music. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, I just I like I have to say something. <laughs> yeah. And so uh so like I waited for it to kind of die down. And then I went up to him and I just I just like essentially thanked him. And I was like, I'm here with my band and I forget what I said, but it was the gist of it was like, I just want like your all of your bands have influenced me like politically, personally, and like musically. And I just want to say thank you. And he says like, he's like, oh, it's all about the music. Wow. And he's like really cool. And like he, we just kind of like shot the shit for a minute after that, talked about Pennsylvania and talked about uh, the Evens for like a second. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it was like one of the few times where I said like it was, it was worth it to like meet a hero, you know, because it like, it made me like all his bands more. Man, that's amazing. And the last thing you expect when you're getting dinner at the Coachella catering tent. Yeah. <laughs> the food is really good. I got to say. Wow. <laughs> That's the thing I remember most is the, the food is fucking good. Dude. 
Go Coachella. <laughs> What's anything coming up with tours or records, anything like that right now? Um, Glitter will have a seven inch out soon. Cool. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. We're just waiting on for it to come back. So that'll just, when it comes out, it's just going to come out. Um, cool. I'll record. It's all yeah. recorded and sent off and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, all cool. good. It's, it's good to go. We're just waiting on the records to come back. And then um, we have no tours at the moment, but we're like starting to plan some stuff. So yeah, hopefully do some international touring, play a bunch of shows over the summer. I don't know. Just, just stay busy. You know, that's, that's the goal always. Yeah. Dude, that's awesome. Dude, Ned, thank you, man. I think, uh, I think neither of us blew it. I mean, we knew you would blow it, but I don't. <laughs> I've, I've been known to blow it. <laughs> I feel like I didn't blow it for first time doing this. I had, I had fun. Did you have fun? Yeah, dude. it was. It, you did. You did good. Oh, thanks, dude. Tiger Radio is produced by Warren Evans. The song you hear at the beginning and end is "The Heat" by Post Teens.